If you've ever had the chance to become fluent in more than one language, and especially in a handful of languages, whether spoken or written, uh, written being uh, even you know programming languages, and in, in the case of what I'm going to be talking about today, but uh, if you ever had that chance, you'll realize that you can start to discern different sort of nuances and almost like a feel or a flavor for each language. And welcome back to the eighth episode of the Tunnel Coder podcast. My name is Nate, and I'm so glad you could join me today or tonight, wherever you're at. And today I'm going to talk about a subject that I've never really heard anyone else talk about in quite the same way. And that is the feel or the sort of ergonomics of different programming languages. So I'm going to discuss the three languages that I'm most fluent in, and I'm going to talk about the ways that it feels to work in these different languages when you've had a chance to uh, do a number of projects in these different language styles, and they're sort of the nuances of the language start to come to the surface. And I've had the good fortune in my career of learning four different programming languages and three of which I've written enough projects in to really feel fluent and really feel like I could pick up any one of the three at any time and, uh, you know, write a production app. And so I feel that that's given me the ability to sort of understand those different nuances and those different flavors that they sort of come to the forefront after, you know, quite a long time of working with these different languages and seeing the way that they, each one will implement different problems or different, um, or not implement problems, but each one will implement the solution to a well-known engineering problem in a different way and sort of in a different flavor. And you begin to kind of feel as a whole, uh, the sort of intangible sense of what that language is all about and kind of almost feel this intangible sense of uh, the designers and their intentions behind the scenes. And so today I'm going to talk about three different languages, the ones that I I mentioned uh, that I'm fluent in, and that would be Python, uh, Node.js or JavaScript, and C Sharp. The fourth language that I'm uh, proficient in is Java, but uh, I don't have as much experience with Java, so I'm going to leave that one out for now. So starting right off with Python, uh, the one thing I can say with Python just right off the bat for me, um, and take all this with a grain of salt, I mean, if you uh, are an engineer and you're listening to this, you you may not agree with me at all. These are just my opinions and uh, you know, this is something that um, is sort of hard to quantify. So this isn't obviously a science or anything that's, you know, uh, a hard fact or anything like that. These are just my opinions. But with that being said, for me, uh, the way Python feels is I would describe it with the word twitchy. And what I mean by that is... Um, it feels like, to me, Python wants to throw exceptions as much as possible. It feels like whenever I'm trying to do something in Python, even simple things, 
you know, right at first when I'm trying to sort of flesh out a problem, it feels like Python just wants to sort of throw up its hands as quick as possible and, and um, you know, uh, stop whatever execution I'm working on. And there are some very definite reasons why Python does this kind of thing. And um, there's technical reasons why the designers chose to have it um, throw exceptions in one uh, scenario and not another. And I don't feel qualified to talk about that. That would be something uh, the language designers would need to talk about. But for me as the end user of Python, as a software engineer at a high level using these high level constructs, um, it just feels, I don't know, sort of um, a little bit inflexible sometimes to me. Although then at the very same time, Python also will give me moments of, of really kind of like a Zen moment where, uh, you know, I'll accomplish something that in my mind was quite a bit more complex. And with just a few lines of Python, I can express this complex situation uh, very succinctly and very um, tersely. And there's also, I, I use the word uh, Zen because there is you know, what's called the Zen of Python. And if you are working in uh, especially the Python uh, REPL, they call it, which is the read, evaluate, print loop. Um, uh, it's sort of like, um, you know, where you can uh, type in your code and get an immediate response back. Um, in fact, if you open up a ter terminal in your computer and just type in Python, if you've got it installed, you'll get into the REPL and you can start playing around. I like to personally use IPython for my uh, Python REPL because it's got a lot better features and everything, but that's a whole other thing. And um, so, but if you're in uh, Python and you're in the interactive uh, interpreter uh, in the REPL, you can type import this and that will bring in the Zen of Python. I'll probably talk about the Zen of Python on another podcast because I think that'd be a cool topic. And it's actually quite deep, even though it seems almost a little bit superficial sometimes. Um, the concepts there are very deep and they were... Um, you know, sort of hammered out over a period of time by some extremely smart people. So that would be kind of a cool thing to go over sometime. I'm not going to get into it right now, but um, Python does have this kind of Zen sort of vibe to it. I mean, besides the fact that it feels kind of twitchy to me, um, there are, like I said, many times when I can express in Python with maybe two, three lines of code what it would have taken me maybe 10 or 15 lines to express in another language like C-sharp. And with that comes a lot of power and a lot of expressiveness. And expressiveness in programming is really a good thing. You want to be able to express the sort of engineering decisions and, and the, the sort of mental state that you arrive at when you're writing that software. And being able to be expressive helps you when you come back to read the, the uh, code because um, I can't remember the exact stat, but I think, um, you know, there's a stat out there on how much code is read versus written. And I believe it's like two to one. It's probably even higher than that, maybe 10 to one. I'd have to look it up. I can't remember. But the point is, is that code is very much more often read than it is written. So you write it. And then you always have to come back or someone else is going to come back and read that code. And you have to kind of get back into the flow 
of what the software engineer was kind of thinking at the time. And well-written code that's written succinctly and tersely and expressively can be much easier to sort of grasp that internal mental state that the engineer was at when he was writing the code. And so, and, and actually, and I should say a little note here, uh, I was thinking in my mind, like I've heard people say, well, that's where good comments and good documentation come in. But I'm actually of the school of thought that good code is actually self-documenting. And so I actually try to not really put any documentation or any comments into my code as much as I can help it. The only time I'll document something is if the code is unclear and I'm unable to make the code more clear at the time by refactoring or engineering it in a more clear fashion just in the code itself. Because I think that well-written code should stand alone and it should you know, really kind of leap off the page and show you what it's doing versus, you know, uh, writing it in a poor, you know, uh, fashion and then just littering it with comments. Uh, anyway, that's kind of a side note. But um, so you have to get back into the state of where you were at or where the software engineer was at when they write it. And I think Python is very expressive in the sense that it does allow you to express complex ideas in a very elegant way. And that's awesome. But the downside to that that I found, and again, this is my opinion, is that Python can kind of be overly terse or overly succinct. And that same sort of superpower of getting things done in just a few lines can actually come back and bite you when you come back and try to get into the flow of where you're at or the other engineer, whoever wrote the, the code, uh, because you find that, you know, there's these really large concepts, very complex sometimes concepts. And, you know, I should say complexity is not the same as complicated. And sometimes you need complexity and complexity can be okay as long as it's expressed elegantly and with, um, you know, good engineering skills. Complicated really doesn't really have much place anywhere, I don't think. But anyway, that, that complexity sometimes can be hidden in a few lines of code where it's hard to get back to what the original intention was, where uh, maybe another language that almost sort of forces you to, you know, think about the language and write, or I'm sorry, think about the problem and write out the problem in a few more lines. Um, in some ways, it's a little slower, and it might not feel quite as zen-like when you're doing it, but I found it's actually a little better when you come back and you want to try to get back into that mental state because it's just a little bit easier to unpack when it's not so dense. And so that's what I want to say about Python. Uh, it's an incredible language, um, very powerful, very easy to pick up, but it accelerates very quickly into some very complex subjects if you let it. And for that reason, I wouldn't recommend necessarily Python as the best beginner language. And I'll talk more about that in the future. That's something I feel very strongly about. And I disagree with a lot of other engineers and a lot of tutorials out there in that uh, they see Python as kind of the best uh, software, or I'm sorry, the best uh, language to start with. And um, I really don't agree with that. I think you can play around with it and learn a few concepts and it's okay to kind of have in your tool set. But I would actually prefer C Sharp. I would prefer that uh, if I was teaching people that they would learn something like C Sharp or Java first and foremost, and then 
uh, go back and pick up Python. And I've got some very specific reasons for that. And I think I'll make that another podcast episode. But I want to move on from Python now to talk about Node.js and JavaScript. And I've got more experience with Node.js, um, which is a variant of JavaScript as a whole. And Node.js was created by a guy named Ryan Dahl. And what it is is that he took the Chrome browser and there's something called the V8 JavaScript engine that runs in the Chrome browser. And he was able to kind of rip that uh, V8 JavaScript engine out of the browser so that it doesn't just run uh, web page code or web app code, but you can actually run it standalone on the server. And this was a really big deal at the time and continues to be a big deal um, in a lot of spaces because it's, uh, first of all, JavaScript is asynchronous by nature, which means that when you run a chunk of code, you almost always provide some kind of a callback function, which is a function that you pass into some uh, other method or function, and you uh, are telling that function that when it needs to pause at some level in the execution, uh, when it continues and resumes that execution, it will execute your callback function and give you the uh, results of that callback function back. It's almost sort of like um, handing somebody uh, like a personal cell phone and sending them to the store and saying, hey, when you're done getting me some groceries, give me a call on this phone that I'm going to hand you. And so it enables uh, the code to basically go and pause itself. And I apologize if you hear my dog barking out in the background. I've got a great Dane named Lincoln and he's out in the backyard. Hopefully he doesn't bother us too much uh, during this episode because I, I won't be able to go out and stop him right now. But um, what, what happens is with the asynchronous code is you basically um, allow the code to stop execution. And what that does is it continues on to another part of the execution and it frees up the thread, it's called, uh, that the execution is happening on. And so it really allows for better performance with a lot less overhead and less memory. And there's a whole bunch of things involved in that that are pretty technical. But so getting into JavaScript and the way JavaScript feels, first and foremost, the thing about JavaScript is that, um, and this is pretty well known, um, there's a book, uh, an older book by a guy named Douglas Crockford called JavaScript, The Good Parts. And it's pretty well known that one of the things that you really want to keep an eye out for in JavaScript, and it's gotten a lot better over the years, but um, JavaScript has a tendency to swallow exceptions and not bubble them up to the to the uh, surface. And so it's really kind of in that way the opposite of Python. Python's very twitchy and will uh, throw an exception very quickly and bring that to the surface, bring that to the engineer's attention that, hey, something exceptional has happened. You need to take a look at this. Something wrong has happened in your code. Whereas JavaScript has this tendency to, if it's not written correctly and you don't handle the um, execution the right way and you don't catch the exceptions the way that you should, you can run into a situation where you have problems in your code, you have you have uh, bugs in your code, but when you, you know that it's malfunctioning, but when you go and look at the console and you try to figure out, uh, you know, look at the logger and everything and see what's going on, you won't see anything sometimes because the exceptions are just getting swallowed because they weren't handled correctly. 
And so in that sense, it can be extremely difficult to track down a certain class of bugs in JavaScript and you find yourself pulling your hair out and spending a lot of time debugging and looking for a needle in a haystack. And so that can be very frustrating and time consuming uh, with JavaScript. And then the other thing about JavaScript that I think is probably the, the thing that characterizes it most to me, especially when I was writing it a few years ago, is that there's something that they call callback hell or the pyramid of doom. And so what happens is since it's asynchronous and like I said, you pass in a, a callback function, you end up writing this function or this method and you pass in this other function that needs to be returned when that function is done executing. But let's say that function that you pass in also needs to asynchronously return some uh, you know, return value to you when it's done. So now you need to pass in another function to that function and you can nest the functions, you know, I've seen it nested very deeply, you know, uh, like four functions nested in. And what happens is you keep moving your code over to the right with every function that you pass in. And it actually literally on the page looks like kind of like a sideways pyramid. So that's why it's called the pyramid of doom. It can be very difficult to uh, debug this kind of code and to understand where in the execution process you are with this kind of code. And so one of the things that JavaScript incorporated to try to mitigate that problem is they incorporated something called promises. And promises are a little bit better in the sense that you don't pass in uh, a uh, callback function or an anonymous function anymore. What you would do is you would uh, use what's called a chained uh, method call or a chained call to another method or another function. And it would usually say something like, you know, here's this first function. And then you uh, put a dot and it's like dot then. And then you pass in another function to execute when that previous function returns from its asynchronous execution after it's done pausing, it's going to return some value and then bring the execution point back to where you put in the dot then function. So instead of looking like a pyramid, it kind of goes down and says like dot then this function dot then this function dot then. And then you can say dot fail for if it, if it fails in that chain of calls then you're going to do this function for the failure and things like that. But it's still, um, it, it's not quite the best because it feels like you're repeating code a lot and it's it's not very pretty to look at, not very nice to write. And, you, and it does sort of violate the dry principle, the DRY or don't repeat yourself principle in software design. So for that reason, uh, what recently happened with, um, I think it was Node.js 7.6, if I'm correct, uh, introduced the concept of async and await. And so uh, async await has actually been around already in other languages, especially with what I'm familiar with. I don't know the whole history of it, but um, I know that uh, C Sharp has had async await uh, asynchronous execution for a long time and quite a bit longer. They're actually uh, very good at this style of programming. And it's almost sort of finally brought JavaScript up to par with a language like C Sharp and the way that they handle asynchronous execution and the sort of elegance of uh, how it looks to write it and to read it. So what it is with that 
is that you can declare a method or a function as async and you put the, the uh, keyword async uh, on the, the method or the function definition. And then down inside of the method or the function, whatever it is that you're waiting on to uh, return a value asynchronously, you can just write the keyword await and you can just await the return value right there on that particular line and you don't have to pass in any kind of callback function or anything. And it really actually looks more like what's called synchronous code. And um, synchronous code is actually more like Python or Ruby. Um, and um, even even Java, actually. Java, you can write Java asynchronously, but, uh, you know, typical Java code is, is synchronous. And so, um, and also, I should say, C-sharp is synchronous unless you use the async and await keywords, but that's very common to use that in C-sharp, and I'll get to that in a second. So finally, uh, JavaScript, especially uh, in Node.js, and um, I haven't done a lot in the browser. I've, I've really, because I'm a back-end developer, have most experience with Node.js in this, but it uh, has finally sort of brought it up to par, like I said, with other languages that allow you to write this asynchronous code in a synchronous looking fashion and it's much more pleasant and elegant and easy to, easier to debug and easier to understand when you come back to read it later on because you're gonna be doing a lot of that. So I'm gonna talk about now the last programming language that I'm fluent in and that is C-sharp. And C-sharp is uh, a language that I uh, write on a daily basis currently and I pretty much started using C-sharp for almost everything except for when I need to do uh, data analysis or if I need to um, quickly uh, prototype some type of an idea or something. Python is, is quite a bit better at quickly you know, snapping off a few lines of code and um, getting a feel for whether a particular engineering idea in your mind is um, you know, fruitful or if you need to do uh, data analysis, there's an amazing package called Pandas and a bunch of other scientific and analytical packages in Python. And that kind of work is light years easier in Python than it is in C-sharp. But the kind of work that I do in C-sharp on a daily basis uh, is very well suited for C-sharp and very well suited for, uh, this t for solving these types of business problems. Uh, the kinds that I work on on a daily basis with the integrations and things like that. So um, part of that reason is, and I'll just uh, get off on a little rabbit trail here, part of the reason is the um, statically typed nature of a language like C-sharp. And basically that means that your variable types and all your data types, um, classes and everything, uh, there's a static type checking process that happens at compile time versus at runtime. And so what that means is that it might just sound, you know, like a bunch of gobbledygook if you don't know what that's about. But in practicality, uh, what that means is that your, uh, your tooling or like the IDEs that you use to write the code um, can really enforce a lot of rules around what types of things you can and can't do when you're writing the code. So you'll get a lot of feedback from the uh, tooling in the uh, in the editor in the IDE itself, telling you, "Oh, hey, you're trying to pass 
an object of customer type into this method, but you declared the method with the type of parameter as an order type, so you can't do that. That's not gonna compile. And so that uh, right there really eliminates a huge class of errors and bugs that would um, really start to plague you on a large basis once you start getting a lot of lines of Python code. And I know that Python has the ability as of, I think, 3.6 or 3.7, which is the, 3.7 is the latest. Um, as of lately, there is the ability to do type hinting with Python. And a lot of companies are uh, moving that direction. So that's, I, I realize that's out there. I'm not going to go into that right now, but um, it feels a little bolted on to me personally. And so anyway, getting back to the C sharp, the way C sharp feels to me is it kind of feels like um, Goldilocks and the three bears. And it's kind of just right for me. It's not too hot, not too cold. It doesn't seem too overly twitchy and too overly um, sort of I, I would say lax in the way of JavaScript or even with JavaScript, the other problem that I have with JavaScript or the way that it feels to me is that it feels like it's moving too fast. And there's uh, just a lot of change in the different libraries and packages that you'd want to use in your project. And so for me, I felt like JavaScript just always felt like a hamster wheel. Like there's always something to be learned and some new thing and some kind of breaking change. And C-sharp does evolve and change, but you'll find with C-sharp and Java and even Python that the rate of change doesn't feel quite as intense. And so for me, it feels a little bit more suited to uh, you know, solving business problems and putting code out there that you know, might run for you know, a good six months or a year with uh without a whole lot of maintenance Uh, i mean maybe some bug fixes here and there but you don't have to worry as much about um you know as much change with the packages that are involved and things like that and so it feels just a little bit sort of more like long-term stable some of the other languages opposed to kind of the javascript ecosystem i know there's a lot of people out there that may differ with me on that that's just kind of my feeling with it and sort of my opinion But moving on to C-sharp, for me, like I said, C-sharp feels like kind of the Goldilocks zone where it's not too hot, not too cold. And one of the things that's so awesome about C-sharp is that um, they really make a lot of design changes in the language on a fairly regular basis. Not, Not fast in the sense that it feels like they're, you know... Uh, a lot of breaking changes and things that you have to keep up with, but it's a really nice pace of evolution where it's very backwards compatible. The API surface area that you get used to is always sort of there, and, they, and Microsoft does a really good job of keeping it there. But you know, the things that they do are, are very welcome enhancements. Uh, like recently, they just added, I think in 7.2 maybe of uh, C sharp. Uh, and I'd have to look this up. I can't remember off the top of my head. 7.1.2, somewhere around there. And I think they're up to 7.3 now. But 0.1 or 0.2 added um, uh, tuple unpacking or destructuring. And um, things like that are just really cool enhancements because it's very actually very similar to Python. Uh, if you can destructure an argument and unpack it into a tuple, 
and then reference the uh, you know different values of that tuple directly. And I know this is something that maybe some of you aren't familiar with. I'll talk about this in the future sometime. But let's just say a tuple is a certain type of data structure similar to an array and um, typically immutable. But um, it can be really nice as a way to return multiple values from a method or a function. And so when you get that value back, sometimes you have to sort of unpack it and go through the different values, and that can take extra lines of code. But what's really nice is being able to kind of unpack that return value right into the variables that you're going to be using on the next line. And so that kind of innovation, I feel like, is just, just right. It takes cues from Python and from some of the other languages around it, and uh, we'll, they'll incorporate that into C-sharp, and, and um, I really appreciate that. And so for me, I don't have a lot of gripes with C-sharp. I feel like it's kind of one of those languages that it just feels right to me. It feels ergonomically right. Like every time I reach for something, uh, you know, it's right there, you know, and it's like the documentation is always really good, and um, I can usually pretty quickly figure out how to do things, or if I have an intuition about how to do something, my intuition usually plays out fairly correctly in the code. And um, anyway, for me personally, uh, I feel like with C-sharp, I've found just a really good uh, sort of balance of all the different languages I've used. But um, probably to the downside, I would say when you're dealing in C-sharp with certain types of things, it can feel very sort of verbose and especially in Java, there's this concept of too much ceremony. So uh, languages like Java and C Sharp has been has, it's been said of C Sharp this too, this way too, but that there's too much sort of pomp and circumstance and ceremony around things when you really just want to get down to the business of you know uh, writing some function or some method and doing some action and getting the value back instead of you know declaring you know, a bunch of properties and a bunch of classes and all this sort of like extraneous uh, information around what you want to do. And so Java's pretty bad at that. C Sharp over the years, though, they've been very good at slowly sort of iterating on the amount of code and the amount of ceremony that takes place. And they've really gone in in key areas and compacted that ceremony down so that, you know, it takes a lot less code now than it ever did before to write certain types of things in C-sharp. And for that reason, I really do like the uh, .NET community. I feel like they're paying attention to those types of things. And another thing is uh, the tooling around C-sharp is just really excellent. I really enjoy using Visual, Visual Studio uh, when I'm on Windows. And um, there's some other IDEs on uh Mac and, and Linux, and also Windows that I really enjoy from uh, JetBrains. Like the add-on resharper that you can add into Visual Studio is amazing. I highly recommend that if you're using Visual Studio for Windows, but uh, if you're using like a Mac or Linux, you can use uh, an IDE called Rider that has uh, resharper built into it. Now I'll talk about that some other time because that's kind of a cool uh, thing to talk about as well. But wrapping up, uh, C-sharp I feel like is sort of this amalgamation of a bunch of different languages and it has 
features and constructs from a bunch of different places that really do make it feel at home or make a developer feel at home if you come from other languages and helps you to feel like your favorite sorts of ideas are all kind of there and um, it feels innovative and things like that. But at the end uh, of the day, I was gonna, like I was starting to say earlier, one of the things that can be frustrating around the area of ceremony is like when you're trying to work with uh, like files and especially streams, things like that. I found working with streams super frustrating where uh, let's say you've got some stream of bytes or whatever and you want to read that stream off and I don't know, do something to it in the in the middle or you want to turn it into a list or, you know, in some way, um, you know, sort of transform it into some other data structure. Uh, you typically have to, uh, if you want to do anything with that stream, you have to like rewind to the beginning of the stream when you're done and, and close the stream and all this kind of stuff. And um, I found that really kind of ugly and verbose to have to pass in like um, an index of zero to like rewind the stream to the beginning. Um, it feels kind of like having to go from an MP3 player or like a, I shouldn't say an MP3. It feels kind of like having to go from like uh, iTunes on my phone with like a, uh, you know, a music subscription, like a streaming subscription, all the way back to like a cassette player, you know, kind of like that. In that one area and a few other areas, it feels kind of clunky. But um, anyway, those are just some of the things that bother me, but it's not enough to really make me dislike the language on the whole. As a whole, um, it's what I use every day and uh, I'm really very happy with it. So I hope this really quick tour through my very personal thoughts on these three different languages and the way that they feel and sort of a real kind of uh, surface level look at the ergonomics of these languages. Uh, I hope it was informing and interesting for you. And as always, I hope that you're having an awesome day or night wherever you're at, and we'll talk to you soon.